good, 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 good match show. Welcome everyone to the weekly wrestling podcast, The Good Match Show. I'm Nello. Hello. That's Isai. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Doing well. You were just telling me you've been playing Halo? Yeah. That's sick. I I miss playing Halo. I feel like 1, 2, and 3 are some of like the best feeling video games that there are. Yeah, I used to be like fairly decent at it, and I play now. And like I started a game off like the last one before we started recording, fucking triple kill, hit kill number four like in the next like twenty seconds. I'm like, oh, killing it. Didn't get another kill. That was it. <laughs> That's you just you popped early. That's <laughs> oh, yeah. Then after we that, call that like, done. It's the Mark Jindrick. That dude, his talking shop podcast was a lot of fun. For anyone that hasn't listened to it, check it out. Um, the most recent episode of Talking Shop. I didn't realize that they were interviewing him until like five minutes into the interview, and I was like, "Who's this other voice?" Marco Corleone. <laughs> it was so much fun. I remember uh, he was watching like, him in um, the, it was like the short-lived MTV series Lucha Libre USA: Masked Warriors, and like he was one of the big stars. I, I watched that entire that. series. Like in like a Damn. like a couple of weeks on Hulu when I first got it. Yeah, you hear that, geeks? That's real wrestling dedication right there. He's also been watching Matt Rats every day. I've, so <laughs> I've I've tried to look for like some of like the early Teddy Hart and Jack Evans stuff. Yeah, yeah. is Matt Rats on YouTube? I don't. I I don't. I think I was on Daily Motion. Daily Motion has everything. Should we change our name from Good Matt Show to Matt Rats Show? No, Good Rats Show. Just no more good matches, just purely Matt Rats. Um, fuck. That's back when I got um, Hulu specifically to watch NXT. Back when it was like Seth Rollins and Adrian Neville, but then also like Johnny Curtis and Michael McGillicuddy. Oh my god. It wasn't the first ever NXT tournament. It ended. The finals were McGillicuddy, or it was Ma- Jinder Mahal versus Seth, right? Yes. That's so weird. <laughs> A lot less jacked Jinder Mahal. He hadn't found steroids yet. Speaking of jobbers, okay, so we'll, we'll jump into it in a minute. But, man, I'm loving seeing Akira Tozawa on my TV so much lately. But I hate how it's like you don't need to use him on Raw to lose every week while he's in the tournament. Like, there's obviously someone else he could use. And I think it's because Heyman it. likes him. Yeah. Because he's I like, mean, he's... He's, he's getting, so good at selling. He's getting positioned like, as like he's ahead of like Shane Thorne and Brendan Vink and like those like Tahuti Miles, like these guys who are just like randomly popping up. He's ahead of them because he gets an entrance, people know him. But he's yeah. definitely like a lower card guy, which you, you need guys like that in wrestling who like yeah. could potentially beat a mid card guy that wouldn't be super weird, but most likely he's gonna lose. And it's like, I, I mean, I think Tozawa excels at any position he's in. I guess for me, it's just frustrating that it's like, why not just put Vink in that position for those two matches or something just while he's in the Cruiserweight tournament? So you don't have to have him lose on national TV while he's beating other guys on NXT, I guess. Because Brendan Vink is too busy teaming with Shane Thorne. Dude, okay, I didn't realize it was Shane Thorne at first, and then they said his name, and I was like, oh, nice hair. He's actually pretty good. No, I, I really like Vink and Thorne. Um, they're a fun team. You want to go through? I got some raw notes. You just want to go through raw real quick? Yeah. We'll, we'll just got go. bullet points. We can talk we'll about it. Raw. We'll get raw. So make sure to snap it off, pop it off, because we're getting raw. <laughs> um, I'm loving these opening segments with Drew McIntyre. I think this guy fucking oozes charisma. He has great crowd control of a crowd that's not even there. Like he just plays it so well. Um, he breaks I like, the rule every week, and he breaks the fourth wall. Yeah, he breaks the fourth wall, and then he also does a lot of interjection, just like funny little quips. And it's like you don't usually get that. Like he speaks very realistically. It's more um, of a conversation than like, all right, your turn to talk, my turn to talk. Exactly. Like when Zelina walked out and he's like, ah, Zelina, the thorn in my ass. I thought that was so fucking great. Um, and she's like, and I love to. <laughs> I loved how right at the end of the opening segment, um, he goes, if you've got kids, put them to bed because I'm going to slaughter that man. And I was just like, 
what the fuck? And that was like the last thing you hear before they go off to like commercial. And I was like, I love this. And I thought that was so much fun to hear. He covers he's every just, base he's, too. He really does. And he's having so much fun with what he's doing right now. And I think him not even really overcompensating, but just giving that extra bit, you know, is just helping so much. They're doing a good job too with the opening segments kind of, uh, especially because like they're using um, Andrade, Angel, and Austin Theory kind of throughout the whole show of introducing, hey, this is what you're getting later is this, this, and this. Here's how we build this up. Here's why we're going to go to the main event, blah, blah, blah. So just a good job of like pacing the show out. So you kind of know what to expect and it, like it isn't bullshit and it follows like a roadmap instead of aimlessly yep. wandering. It's not like 30 segments that are all like not connected. It mm. is like, oh, this makes sense. Like, this is why we're doing this. This is why we're doing this. There's a, an actual destination. And it's very strange that they're doing that, but I like it. Isn't it weird to have like cohesivity and like a roadmap and just oh my god things are actually happening that matter and yeah it's a good time I like squash, um, I like squash matches great series of Money in the Bank qualifying matches what I'm a big I'm a big squash match guy so like I enjoy it because they they work there's a reason why like they got people over for years I mean even Braun Strowman Ryback like squash matches they can be yeah. fun. I mean, look at that Lance Archer, Michael Stunt one. That one was awesome. Yeah. I think people online were like, they need to take be nicer to Marco. I'm like, what spot do you think this kid's in? He needs his purpose to get thrown. <laughs> He's five um, foot like one. Archer's like six, six seven eight. or whatever. Yeah, it's crazy. Murder hawk. Um, yeah, great series of money in the bank qualifying matches. I think if there's been an MVP to Raw lately, besides Drew, it's been Alistair Black. This dude just keeps coming out and having just great matches. His style translates so well to the open arena. I did not see Cruz versus MVP. I was having dinner, so if you want to comment on that, feel free to. And I thought Mysterio versus Murphy was an awesome first-time matchup. I thought that one could have gone either way, and I'd be happy. I honestly wanted Murphy a bit more. understand why you'd want Ray. He's a star. He's like one of the best baby faces you have because it's so real. Um MVP versus Cruz was cool because MVP can talk really well. He can still work really well. And his character is such a trash talker that it works really well in the no fan era. That's uh, sweet. And so when you have that and then you have just the athleticism of Apollo Cruz, makes for a good time. Yeah, I think um, – do, do you think that MVP will go in a sort of managerial role for Cruz or no? I, I hope so. I hope this is where Me it's too. leading. Because then, like, somebody that can be even heel with Apollo Crews just being, like, how talented he is and, like, his trunks and shit say, like, too easy. Like, have somebody that's overhyping him and, like, getting under people's skin. And then Crews is like, this is fucking too easy. Look how good I am. And he can still be, like, his, like, just, like, his, his same character he is now with just with a shit talker with him. And then he starts winning matches against, like, Brendan Vink. That's all you need. Um, Shayna Baszler furthers her arm-breaking storyline. I think it's fine. It's just Pentagon from Lucha Underground. It's giving her a fun edge, I guess. This is... the. Uh, I was wondering what they were going to do with her on the main roster, and I was like, this is fine. No, this is perfect, especially because like it it adds another layer because like, since she lost, she's like, okay, I'm going to fucking just go off and hurt people now. Totally. And, and, you can, um, and then like the women's division can kind of turn on Becky and be like, Hey, what the fuck? Like, this is your fault. Everybody's getting drop hurt. the title. We don't have arms. <laughs> just like everyone's walking around and saying, "Like you selfish bitch." <laughs> she, she broke Sarah Logan's arm so bad she got fired. Oh my god! And then they brought Sarah Logan back on Monday because they said she was going to be in two segments. And like, eh, we're not going to use you actually. Like, dude, if I was Raymond Rowe and they made me do carpool karaoke and fire my wife in the same week, I'd be like, God damn, where's Mike Kanellis? How did he get out of this? Honestly, they I don't know if like they hate it as much because I saw like there was like it was so split online. I saw a lot of people that hated it, but a lot of people that really liked it. Like, oh, it was fun. It was different. It shows like they're not just thinking they're actual Vikings. Like they're just having a good time. And I'm like, Jesus, like it's like such like like over one I, side and over the other. 
I love it when my Vikings are human and enjoy to party and sing along just like regular people. You know, I think that it really makes them a better character. <laughs> I will say I do like them more than like regular Vikings because like regular Vikings, you know, maybe aren't the best type of thing with the pillaging and everything that they did. Yeah, exactly. So I guess it's also, better if you're sticking purely to Raideen. Yeah. it's And also I don't think other Vikings have um, straight edge tattoos. Yeah, and it's uh, I think that with the Viking gimmick too and the straight edge tattoos, like if you combine Viking and straight edge tattoos, it just looks like white supremacist, which is really unfortunate. <laughs> so, that's, why <laughs> that's, maybe, like, that's like that's like the recipe. A little bit is okay. Yeah, maybe we need to. Um, next up, we had Shid, uh, said Ricochet continuing their streak as a tag team with Ricochet nearly eating the fucking mat on a botched Razor's Edge or a Conrada. That scared the fuck out of me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I thought it was cool that they tried it especially in a match with like when would someone like a team like Brendan Vink and Shane Thorne ever get the opportunity to do a Razor's Edge reverse or a Conrana spot so I think it's cool if they're giving these teams and these matches a little bit more where um, I wouldn't say like even stuff like Oni Lorcan versus Aleister Black right it's um, it very rarely ends so quickly now. Like even I would say like the squashes are like three to four minutes. Yeah. So I'm, I'm enjoying that. Oh, only Lorkin last week got fucking demolished by that kick. Dude. Yeah. He ate it. He just sat there. It's like, it's like Kota Ibushi. They're like Kota turned left and he just turns right and just eats it <laughs> on purpose. He's like, <laughs> yeah, fine. just knocks himself out smiling. How many times oh, he has a punch card for the amount of times he's been in the shadow realm. Jeez. So <laughs> this next one's free. Um, I Next. like to say um, going oh. with said Ricochet because, like, there are two guys that are exciting. They can use this to help get their moves and get them over as a team. And so when it is back in front of crowds, people are like, oh, this stuff is cool. I talked about this a few weeks ago on the podcast. I am um, curious to think. So who do you think – I mean, who do you think is even going to challenge the Street Profits right now? Because I feel like it would be weird to do said Ricochet unless you do kind of a face versus face. But – I would like for the Street Profits to have like a legitimate feud and then maybe fight said Ricochet after, but I just, I don't even know of any other really teams right now on Raw because the Authors of Pain are hurt. The Viking Raiders are face and not really doing much and I don't know. Maybe maybe it's going to be like a three-way thing and like since it's like a three-way thing, you can it can kind of take off the titles more. Maybe... Um, I would say like face heel doesn't matter as much in like triple threats as well, which is nice. Yeah. And so then it's just like you have like the teams bumping around for the Viking Raiders and then like said Ricochet can get a win not on the profits and so then you can kind of go with that. There's just, there's just a lot you can do. I think there's only three teams now on Raw, so Yeah, it's Raw is fucking thin. It's 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 really weird. Um well, you could put like Austin Theory and Angel Garza back there like in a moment's notice, so that's totally. Brendan I mean, I, dude, I fucking love Angel Garza. I want them to give that faction a name already so badly. Every week, I think that they're going to yeah, somehow, be, uh... like, one-up Drew in the fucking main event and then debut the name, the faction name, and each week it just ends. I'm like, God damn it, what's your name, though? <laughs> <laughs> we are... And it's over. <laughs> just the fucking... Just the raw, the raw credits thing. Um, Nia Jax... The worst woman on the roster? Question mark. There's no question mark. <laughs> the that is the question. Um, I, for the fucking life of me, I, I mean, obviously they're gonna try to set up some kind of Oscar Nia Jax feud, which I just fucking don't want to see if Oscar's gonna lose. And then, like, what's the point of feeding Kyrie to her two weeks in a row? It's because Other Kyrie's that, small and like can bump around and tries to make her look I good. Just, but then Nia is just this dangerous. Is dangerous. I mean, yeah, this is my the very least favorite of my like the, my very least favorite of WWE. Um, yeah, there's no I, positivity I mean, for me on this. No, it's uh, she's dangerous. <laughs> and then, like, even if it's in character, like when she goes on Twitter and just like. Is like, oh yeah, like she couldn't stop me, and neither can Ron. It's like, dude, fuck off! Like, you legitimately could have like, like hurt somebody really bad with that move. How about you just fucking like shut your mouth? We don't absolutely care that you're and uh, the rock. and I would feel like it's almost like she constantly disappears, whether it be like because she's asked her time off or an injury, and anytime she comes back, she's immediately pushed back into the main event fold. And it's like most of the time they do like 
what I hate about her is that it's kind of like a big show thing, right? Where they kind of retcon the character. Like, there's no, like, there's no real history to Nia Jax. It's just whoever she is at this moment. Because last time we saw Nia Jax, she was like a fucking advocacy for anti-bullying who is like, no, be nice. I was treated poorly. And then she comes back and she's just like so fucking mean and shit talking right when she comes back. I'm like, what did you learn while you were gone? Just to be a worse person? Like, how does that work for your character? But it doesn't. It doesn't work. It's for just shit. It's pure shit. Um, Liv Morgan versus Ruby Riot. Ruby says, there never was a Riot squad. I fucking hate it when they say stuff like this because it's such <laughs> throwaway WWE stuff. Because yeah, it's like, it's and I, I'm like, imagine is Ruby Riot she's like is a performer. She's like, yeah, fuck my favorite thing that I've probably done in the main roster so far and some of my fondest memories. We all got um, tattoos, so yeah. She's like, there never was a Riot Squad. Um, however, I will say this: I think Liv Morgan, like Bianca Belair, is a future star. I love the finish to this match. I thought it was awesome. Well, How it just came out of nowhere. Match. <laughs> I did not see the Bianca match. What was it? It was her versus uh, Caden Carter. And Bianca, like, it's, like, move. And then, like, nothing, like, in between that's, like, actually wrestling. And then, like, oh, here's another high spot. All, all she has is spots. And there's not, like, a match that's happening. It is, oh, here is some things I can do that are athletic. And then that's it. Like, it's not good. It's absolute slander. And the Bianca Hive will not stand for that. Hashtag Bianca Hive. One time I said, like, on Twitter, and I was like, um, I was just saying I wasn't a fan of Bianca. This was a while back. And somebody then tried to say that it was white people against Bianca, like, replied to me. I'm like, oh, like, dude, like, I'm sorry to say, like, I'm not white. And then he blocked me. <laughs> it's the easiest way to get in that situation, I suppose. Yeah. Um. yeah like, what do you say? Because it's not like I, I think she's super athletic and she's, like, super raw as a talent. There's a lot there, but there like it's not it's not here yet. Like as a wrestler, like it's gonna they're gonna do to her like what happened to Nia Jax and what happened to Dana Brooke. You call these people up too early who like have like something that you could be like, Okay, we can kinda run with this and then it's gonna take them a long time. It's taken Dana Brooke like until this year to where she's like having passable matches. Not even good well, I- passable. I think that one of the the problems with her call-up, too, is that I don't think she should have been called up to Raw. I think that Baszler kind of overshadows that, and I think that no woman got called to SmackDown. You brought Nia Jax, Bianca Belair, and Shayna Baszler, technically like three monsters to Raw. SmackDown really could have used one of them, and I think that Bianca would have been the best fit because SmackDown's the more sports entertainment show, right? But then you can't really split her up with the Street Profits, so it's just an unfortunate situation. I agree. She um she isn't quite there yet, but I think with Liv Morgan, I feel I feel like every time I see them, they really fucking try. They're always doing something new that I appreciate. I think that they will be future stars in their division. Dana Brooke tries real hard uh, too. Yeah. She does that cool cartwheel flip. That's the one. That's her move. And finally, in regards to Raw, I've really been enjoying, again, how they're building up Andrade and his stable, as well as the whole title supremacy on the brand. Um, I think it's elevated the U.S. title greatly. We talked about this briefly the other night. But yeah, I just I like how much interaction there is between the two champs because it seems like they both actually give a shit, which is awesome. They're putting some weight behind it. And like as a brand as a whole, they're trying to say, hey, these are our top guys. And so, like, it makes sense, like, that they're all over the show. They're the, the top guys. Um, I still, like, I'm still, I think the way that you feel about Bianca is the way I feel about Austin Theory. Um, so I still, I'm getting used to him, but I still wish that someone else would have been in that spot. But what can you do? I think with um, Austin Theory, because, like, like, he's not there yet either. But, like, since he's in a group, it's easier to hide. Exactly, and he can play that young chicken shit guy really well. He's like the Roddy of the group. Yeah, he has um, that fucking face. He really does, and it's the haircut too. Yeah, that's it. Um, so that's it. That's <laughs> that's it for Raw. I'm gonna update you, update everyone real quick on the Noah Global Tag League because we were talking about it last week. Have you followed this at all? No. So last week I was like, you know, it really doesn't make sense that 
you're going to have Rene Dupree fucking pin like the tag champions on the first night of the tournament, right? Wait, like it's wait, just wait, a crazy thought. And this is wait, wait. Wait, Rene Dupree. The Rene Dupree. Rene Dupree is teaming with El Hijo del Dr. Wagner Jr. in the Global Tag League. This is his Noah so debut. The third Dr. So Wagner. This, yeah. And um so guess what the finals of the Global Tag League were? I don't know. Axis. Go Shiyazaki, the pro wrestling Noah GHC heavyweight champion, and Katsuhiko Nakajima losing to Rene Dupree and El Hijo del Dr. Wagner Jr. in 27 minutes. Then the next day on the show, The Spirit, Rene Dupree and El Hijo del Dr. Wagner Jr. defeated the GHC tag team champions Masaaki Michizuki and Nayamichi Mirafuji in 23 minutes and 22 seconds to become the brand new GHC Tag Team Champions. So Rene Dupree in 2020 is the NOAA Tag Team Champion. Kataro Suzuki also defeated Yoshinaru Ogawa in 25 minutes to win the GHC Junior Heavyweight Belt and Rattles retained against uh, their opponents for the Junior Heavyweight Championship Belts against uh, Sugiura Goon in 24, 21 minutes. Um, that's it for Noah. That's really it for Japan. Nothing else has been happening. 2AW just had an amazing anniversary show. Um, for anyone that doesn't know, when Takamichi Noku, when he got caught having an affair, his company, Kaintai Dojo, split into two different companies. Just Tap Out, which is Takamichi Noku's current company with essentially the Young Lions from Kaintai, as well as 2AW, which was all the stars from Kaintai. So they had... Um, Yuji Okabayashi winning their main title against Shuasakawa, as well as a tag team title match. And I can't remember the team names, but holy shit, this was one of the best matches of the year. It was like two veterans and all they have are like really crazy pin maneuvers and like just trickery. And then these other guys are just shoot fighters. And it was an amazing, amazing blend of wrestling. So that's it for Japan. Um, I started watching Dark Side of the Ring. Have you been watching that at all? Um, I didn't watch the latest one. So Dino Bravo. Yeah, I haven't watched that one, but I okay. know the story of Dino Bravo. Yeah, I, I never knew anything about Dino Bravo. All I've watched is Brawl for All and the Dino Bravo one, and I, I really enjoy it. I think the execution's great. The concept's awesome. I What I really enjoy, too, is that you can tell when these guys are just talking absolute bullshit, and it's funny that I'm like, how do you even make a documentary about wrestling? Because everyone has their own version because they're all fucking carnies, and that's what's fun is like piecing together your own truth. Well, I mean, there's not much uh, piecing together on the Dino Bravo when you get, like, a bullet-ridden body found. <laughs> but, like, um, like on the the one with uh, Superfly Snooka and, like, Sam Fought 2 just, like, working people and, like, fucking, um, if you watch any from last year, like, Abdul the Butcher, like, from the moment they started was, like, just working. And, like, even the yep. producers had said, like, Oh, we knew from the moment he just said, opened his mouth, he was just full of shit. Yeah. <laughs> just, you got to sit there for like three days interviewing this person. That's me whenever uh, I hear Bruce Pritchard. Oh, my God. Yeah. The Brawl for All the one was fucking crazy, and it made me feel so bad for Bart Gunn. Oh, Mike Bart. Like, they didn't, like, he actually had a pretty successful, like, all Japan run. So, like. They didn't mention that. They keep gin drinking everyone. Like, when yeah. Mark Jindrak was like, they acted like I fucking left WWE and just, like, Died for 17 years. He's like, I'm a CML. I retired heavyweight champion. Um, he retired heavyweight champion. He was in soap operas. He had, like, fucking everything. He was great. Like, he was fine. All right, so now this is going to be the speed round. I'm just going to call out a little news piece. We're just going to talk about it for, like, you know, 30 seconds a minute, whatever. I feel like okay. these are just some fun, hot topics. So, Impact Rebellion started last night. I had no fucking clue. You want to review that for next week? Uh, we can. I have to watch it. <laughs> yeah, it's two nights. So it's last night and then next week they do part two. So if you want to watch that, maybe we can watch it together or something. Yeah. Maybe we can get the uh, the group chat to watch Rebellion. Yeah, I mean, anytime I watch TNA or Impact, whatever the hell they call it these days, I'm like, oh, it's pretty cool. But like, also, I just don't want to watch Michael Elgin. But <laughs> Yeah, I, th- I think I only tune in for like their four pay-per-views a year and that's it. Yeah. And um, well, especially like and man, have like LAX versus fucking um, like uh, Lucha Bros and then shit like that. So it was good times. Yeah, 
Um, okay, Gronk returning to the NFL. And WWE keeps tweeting about it like the fucking uncool friend that wants to tag along to the party. And I think it's so funny. They're like, could we see a title change in the end zone? I'm like, the NFL will never let you within a fucking hundred yards of a stadium because they fucking hate Vince. And then they don't hate Vince. Like, the NFL? No. Maybe billionaires have solidarity. But yeah, um, really, it's also like, what NFL team is going to let their fucking star player get into a WWE ring and do that because the insurance evolved and like the fucking, what if something goes wrong? Gronk's not going to be able to do shit for him now. So I feel like they just signed this megastar and now they get nothing from it almost. Well, they can probably, like, he probably had to actually, like, talk to wwe they probably figured something out and especially with them being on fox and nfl's games are shown on fox you have your ambassador out there that's also there let's say he signed like a three-year deal let's just say he's only going back for one year he comes straight off of football right back into wwe that's like money ah Okay, fuck me. I forgot there's an off-season for football. I'm so wrapped up in my wrestling bubble. I'm like, how is he going to fucking do Well, not even just <laughs> he's that. Playing. Like, because like he, he's already retired once. And let's just say, like, he goes out there. He's been kind of known to get injured. Um, or his body just doesn't hold up the way he thinks it will. After the end of the season, he's like, all right, cool. I had one more run left in me. And here it is. He's a big star in everybody's household, like fucking millions and millions of households. Then they're like, hey, next week, fucking Gronk's going to be on SmackDown on next Friday. Everybody tune in. And they're like, oh, shit, Gronk's going to be there. We'll watch. Tampa Bay Buccaneer fans are like, oh, hell yeah. So. <laughs> Fuck yeah, he is. Uh, this, speaking of football, Vince McMahon has been sued by Oliver Lucky. Oliver Luck. God damn it. The former XFL commissioner. <laughs> And Brandon Thurston of WrestleNomics deemed that the release cuts were morally heartless and economically unnecessary. And now they're running this Drake Maverick, like, will he get rehired angle? And if this doesn't ha- end with this guy getting fucking rehired, this, like, is going to leave such a bad taste in my mouth. I think they're going to do it. I think, like, I think they, I think, um, I said this on WrestleBoys, I think Triple H didn't know some of his guys were getting cut. At first, they're like, all right, this is going to happen. And then all of a sudden, like, Mark Carano starts getting on the phone. And then he's like, Vince, I had him fucking booked for the next four fucking weeks or whatever. And they're like, well, just yeah. fucking use him. And so I, I think after they kind of saw the response in the video, they're like, okay, we'll bring you back. Because, I mean, they're already bringing Sarah Logan back. I mean, I mean, I was, I was like, I was all in on the... Uh... Drake Daniel Bryan storyline here, but then he loses to Jake Atlas in the first match, and I was like, if he loses to Jake Atlas, he is not getting out no, of his fucking block. It, ma- it makes so much sense because I think he goes zero for three and then gets a contract like Cedric Alexander. I don't. I think he wins the next week. He beats, and then he beats Kushida to come out of the block. No, so he has to beat Tony Nice. Tony Nice beats Jake Atlas. Kushida beats Tony Nice. Like or, he already. Kushida already won once, right? Kushida beat Tony Nese, so he has Jake Atlas and Drake Maverick left. Yeah. And so Jake Atlas loses to Kushida, and then Jake Atlas loses to Tony Nese, and then Maverick steals one on Tony Nese, and so you set up the final of Kushida versus Drake Maverick. Maverick for winner. And it's the yeah. guy that everybody's like picked to win against like now like everybody's do like emotional favorite. Like that's that's some fucking money TV, and it's like it is, but it's like man, Kushida needs this. He desperately needs to win this goddamn title. So, so does poor Drake. And so, because it's like I think Phantasma, no matter what, goes to the finals and gets just a star showcase, right? Yes. And then, um, and I think that's what your B block story is. And I think that A block would have definitely been Kushida's story. But then this fucking Drake Maverick thing happened, and it's one of those like Kofi things. I think it's like it's like the Drake Maverick thing. I think is gonna end up um, hurting Jake Atlas because instead of him getting like that kind of sentimental showing of like young fiery baby face, now we have Drake Maverick that's gonna need to have that. Wasn't Jake Atlas in his interview? He's like, "Fuck, I was rooting for him." Like, what? Well, you no, were rooting for Drake Maverick? I know. I mean, I know, but it's just like it was just a funny I, interview. I, I like, I like it because it's like a real emotion because it shows like he's a good person, like as a real like, good person. Yeah. It's like, 
I needed to win this, but fuck, like I'm rooting for the guy. Really? The contract. It's like an actual human emotion, not just like really black and white, you know? Yeah, I also fucking popped when he got to do the LGB DDT is his finisher. Oh, that was so. so that's what he called it on the indies, and it's uh, it's one of my favorite moves. It's just he that was one of the best looking ones he ever did. And what was awesome is that whenever you watch GCW or you know CWF or PWG, you don't get that top turnbuckle camera angle. So to see it like that for the first time was really special. I thought. Yeah. Um, the revival is now named the Revolt. Caleb Conley is pissed. He's so pissed. I think that's fucking hilarious because the revival was from that territory, and they these guys had to have known. What do you think? They Caleb Conley said that they've known him for fifteen years. <laughs> that, that's bullshit. Man. Like I know the revival right now gets a pass on whatever they're doing because they're like internet golden boys who told Vince to go fuck off, and like people get off on that shit. But like you can't like be praised as a hero for being so anti like Vince McMahon and then go do a Vince McMahon thing. Exactly. These people have spent five years investing into this name and now you're going to be like, guess what? Now we just elevated it and it's not yours. And it's just, there were so many different names they could have done. That's a, that's a total like Vince McMahon move. He's like, well, you didn't yep. own the copyrights. Fuck you. I'm going to take your name, Bubba Ray Dudley. Speaking of people leaving the WWE, Chris Hero has also returned because there was speculation on some people will return once this is all over, but it looks like Chris Hero has already quote-unquote returned, and even people like Zack Ryder, a.k.a. Matt Cardona, have started their own pro wrestling tea shops, which is awesome, and it made me really, really happy on Talking Shop. Did you listen to the, the most recent episode? Yes. So when um, Luke Gallows was like, we're going to have so much fucking fun showing Heath around like the circuit. On the outside of WWE. And that made me really, really happy. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if um, Carl Anderson, Luke Gallows, like, just like the next time there's a new Japan show and things are opened up, they're there. Yeah. I would love it. Um, I think that they're absolutely going back to Japan. And I hope that they bring a couple friends with them or get a couple friends in the door. Because I think that it's like if they release just the jobbers, right? Like, which isn't to a slight against them, but these are people that have been in the WWE system, the majority of those guys for years upon years with little exposure outside of it. But then you also release Luke Gallows and Carl Anderson who essentially have a connection in every major company. So these guys are like fucking agenting for other dudes now, which is sick, it sounds like. And I think that that's their big fuck up was releasing the Good Brothers because the Good Brothers are going to help forge good relationships for all these other wrestlers with other companies right, now. Ryder and Hawkins would have been fine. Hawkins already had the connections. EC3 was would be fine. Um, yeah, I'm talking for people like Slater. I think, I mean, Ryder has connections, but I feel like still it's like if they want to get their foot in the door in Japan or something now, they, they have the Good Brothers there. I would there. not want them to go to Japan. Zack Ryder, not in New Japan. You don't want him and Hawkins? They wouldn't I want him sense. and let's, let's fantasy book it real quick. I want No Way Jose, Kurt Hawkins, and Zack Ryder, and DD fucking T. I want Heath Slater and GCW. I want Rusev in New Japan and AEW. I want Maverick and EC3 in AEW. I, think I want that, the Good Brothers in New Japan. I think that uh, Heath Slater's going to end up on PWX shows against Caleb Conley. <laughs> Fighting as the revolt. Yeah. There's just the third team now. Um, Against the finally band, but it's like Heath Slater and like fucking Jake Manning and Jeff Hart. <laughs> it's just inflatable instruments. It's not even people. He's just like, fuck, man, it's just my band. No, um, EC3 is going to be fine. Like, Gallows and Anderson. Like, they, I they, think EC3. They, they, were, they didn't want to resign. It just then they got offered 750 a year for five years. Which is insane. And they're like, yeah, we'd be dumb not to take that money because at first they were offered 500k and they turned it down. And we're like, we're just going to go back and do our thing. We're cool. But then they're like, how about 750? And they're like, fuck, that's a whole new house. Let's do it. I just, I think I feel bad mostly for people like Rowan who carried around a goddamn cage for six months for it to be a mechanical spy and then you get fired after. Like, because it's how like. They wrote that, by the way. I know exactly how they did it. They had three dartboards. First one was the person. They're like, boom, okay, Rowan. <laughs> I'm going to do something with Rowan. And they throw him to the dart. It's like, okay, he's going to carry around a big fucking cage. And then the next one, like, okay, so what's in the cage? Go into the dart. Big spider. All right, let's do it. 
And is it going to be alive or mechanical? And if you're the last three, it's like, fucking mechanical, duh. <laughs> mechanical. And uh, like, I How do you like want to pay it because... off? Like, well, flip a coin randomly or actually have a story. Randomly. randomly. It's just, it's heads on both sides. Like, it's always fucking randomly. <laughs> and uh, and then finally, I, thought I didn't really want to cover SmackDown. I thought it was a relatively nothing show outside of Brian and Cesaro. Um, but I will say the main event feuds right now coming out of Mania are probably more interesting or stronger than they have been in recent years. I think that Bray versus Braun writes itself, and Seth versus Drew should be a good workhorse match. Bray versus Braun, they've made a good point to say it's Bray Wyatt and not The Fiend, so he can beat Funhouse Bray, and they're finding at least a little way out of it, but even then they're going to kill somebody, and that opening segment on SmackDown was like the worst acted segment I've ever seen, and I've watched Pirates the Porn Movie before. In full. <laughs> oh my god! Twice, pirates too. Yeah, no. We, uh, my friends and I, way back in the day, like we had the DVDs and the. They were a blockbuster. Yeah, the se- well, like they weren't the full porn versions. Those ones, we had the ones where they were sticking like lit candles in a butthole. <laughs> it's my favorite part of the Pirates of the Caribbean. When I think pirates, I think candles and buttholes. Yeah, that's, that's um, what I think too. I guess. Where do you think I got my last question before we jump going. into our good match of the week would be where do you think Drew because I think that Drew and Braun for me I guess I'll get your opinion too but for me I think Drew and Braun both retain in these feuds yep. and then where do you think they go after this and how long do you think each of these feuds lasts are they a one off or are this is because for Corbin we got three goddamn months but it seems like they're trying not to do those so much anymore. Um, I think I think the first match for Seth and Drew, like, it'll end up being like a schmaz, and I think this one won't be a one-off. I think Bray and Drew will, uh, Bray and uh, Braun will. I don't want to cool. see him going on too much with this shit. No, and I guess because I was thinking like after Seth, who does Drew face, and then nobody. Af- exactly, and after Bray, who does Braun face? Right now, nobody. And that's that's the one thing that I'm like, okay, we're doing good right now, but it's like they're not really building up anyone else for after Seth or Bray right now, it feels like. But, I mean, again, money in the bank's about to happen, so who the fuck knows? Yeah, so, you can change things so quick there. Exactly. I don't. I really don't see them taking the title off Drew, but I could see something crazy happen with Braun and the no money in the bank or whatever. Um, yeah, who do you think's winning money in the bank, by the way? Uh, it depends on who's on it, in it on SmackDown. Have they not done those yet? They just did Brian is in. And I don't think. Oh he's yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, who else? Like, who else would be in it? Like, I can see. Let me see if I can pull it up real quick and see who's in it so far. Money in the bank, twenty twenty. Yeah, so this. Uh, what is it called? The the money in the bank climb the corporate ladder match. They're which is insane. The corporate ladder. If seriously, if there's not like some crazy shot of a dude busting through a wall, Shockmaster style, I'm gonna be fucking furious. <laughs> Bailey versus Tamina, good god. Okay, so we got Asuka, Shayna Baszler, Nia Jax, Dana Brooke, Lacey Evans, Sasha Banks, and TBD. So unless you think TBD is winning, who do you think wins that? Sasha needs to, and then cash in immediately. Just fucking kickstart that feud off. Oh, that would actually be wonderful. And then we got. Daniel Bryan, Rey Mysterio, Aleister Black, Apollo Crews, Drew Gulak, King Corbin, and one TBD. Oh, Who dude. the fuck actually wins that Wait, money Drew in the bank? Drew Gulak's in there? Yeah. Daniel Bryan, Rey Mysterio, Aleister Black, Apollo Crews, Drew Gulak, and King Corbin. Um, right out of those ones? Oh, no, no, no. It says versus Drew Gulak or King Corbin. My apologies. Versus Drew Gulak or King Corbin versus TBD. So it'll probably be goddamn King Corbin, unfortunately. Yeah, they already got one of the pair in there. Okay, so there's a couple... There's two TBDs then? So there's just one, technically, because I think King Corbin will beat Gulak. Okay, so it's Corbin, um, Daniel... Braun, or Brian, Mysterio, Black, and Cruz. Um, Black right now has it in my head, but it depends on who the third's going to be. And it's just so black is on raw, and then it's. I think that what again, and maybe I overthink in these in this sense, but like imagine black carrying around the fucking briefcase, and it just doesn't really make sense. What 
what I'm worried about is Corbin winning it because they just love to give him shit like this He's already won for no once. fucking reason. Exactly. So I, why think not, oh, I don't know. It depends on who the last person is going to be. And if it is who I hope it is, then who? I hope it's Mustafa Ali. Ah, then he could have it. Um, oh, I think it'd be sense? interesting to see then, what Brian does, maybe. Oh, and then like he fucking wins it, and then he, then Bray wins the title, and then he catches it on From Bray, Braun. and then it fucking starts our dream feud of Bray Wyatt, the Fiend, versus Mustafa Ali, the light. Yeah, you say, and I have been talking about this a lot, because since he's the goddamn harbinger of light, it only makes sense for him to beat the darkness, right? The band the darkness. I believe in a thing band. I love. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's it. Fuck. I just really Impact threw off track. I can see it in your eyes. I know that. I just totally lost fucking track. I I did another hour long interview right before this, so I was like, and we were talking about wrestling. Like, I, like um, what sucks? Is like, I record Russell Boys on Tuesday, and so like I feel like I've already said all these things. I'm like, oh, why would I keep saying this? Like, I already said this. I'm like, wait, <laughs> that's a different podcast. <laughs> um, so our main event of the night is Tiger Mask the second versus Kuniaki Kobayashi from March 9th, 1985, All Japan Pro Wrestling's 85 Gekato Exciting Wars Tag 14. So, so for all our listeners oh, out there, the second incarnation of Tiger Mask was none other than uh, Mitsuharu Masawa. Yes, and so last episode, last week when I did the Solo Dolo one, I added in, so, talking about how many five-star matches each guy has going into this, and so, like, last last week was, like, you know, Stan Hansen has three, Funk's got two, Dory and Bruiser Brody each got one. This week, Kuniaki Kobayashi has one five-star match, Mitsuharu Misawa has 25 five-star matches, which is the most. The second place is Kenta Kobashi with 22 and these five-star matches span from 1985 to 2003. So nearly 20 years of five-star in-ring work, which I thought was fucking insane. Want to know who else has a five-star match? Who? Lars Sullivan. Lars Sullivan? Yep. Jinx. <laughs> <laughs> fucking knew you were going to say it. EC3 um, does too. I love how EC3 is like only fucking match in the WWE is a five-star match. That's that's called like, I mean, he definitely just pre-ejaculated his entire WWE career. His NXT so. run was cool. Like, I liked it. Like, his suit with the Velveteen Dream was cool. But then, like, uh, they had that weird call-up, like, in the middle. Like, these new people around. November. And then, yeah. then they did that's, the draft. It was Heavy Machinery, Heavy Machinery, Nikki Cross, EC3. Lacey Evans. Lacey Evans. There was one other one. It was me. Yeah, it was you. Um, so I, I got to break down a little bio of Mitsuharu Misawa, but since we will be talking about him a lot, I only wanted to cover his Tiger Mask two years just so we didn't kind of convolute or anything like that. So, and again, we did, I just take these straight from the Wikipedia because, you know, wrestling, it's not a lot of resources and I don't want to read David, Dave Meltzer's obituaries. I feel like that's just kind of a, they're really informative, but it's also dark and it makes me sad. Yeah. Um, so especially for Misawa, Misawa entered... Exactly, and uh, we'll get to Misawa's end or death eventually, but not this episode. So Misawa entered the All Japan Pro Wrestling Training Camp in March 1981 and was trained mainly by Katsuharo Sonata and Akahisa Takachio. Uh, Though he also received training from Dick the Destroyer, Bear, Shohi Baba, Dory Funk Jr., and eventually Luthez. He made his professional wrestling debut on August 21st, 1981, when he lost against Shiro Koshinaka in an outdoor show in Ura- uh, Urawa. In April 1983, Baba held a round-robin tournament for his preliminary wrestlers called the Luthez Cup, and Misawa entered the tournament. Misawa reached the finals on April 22nd in the Nakajima Sports Center. Misawa made his televised debut in the final match for the Luthez Cup, which Thez himself refereed against Koshinaka to a loss. Baba had intended to send the tournament winner on a foreign excursion, but while Misawa lost the match, he was perceived as a superior talent, despite Koshinaka being three years a senior, and Baba decided to send them both. Misawa had his first time title match on May 20th when he and Koshinaka unsuccessfully challenged Mighty Inyoi and Ashohara Hara for the All-Asia Tag Team Championships. 
Misawa and Koshinaka arrived then in Mexico on March 16th, 1984. So this takes us to the first three years of his career where they wrestled for EMLL, now known as CMLL, as a tag team under the names Samurai Shiro and the Kamikaze. Which is just like, god damn it. Of course it um, is. Yeah. Misawa improved his aerial skills under the guidance of La Fiera. And on April 5th, Misawa had his first major singles championship match. Headlining Arena Mexico and wrestling NWA world middleweight champion El, Cet- El-, El Satanico to a loss. This excursion was meant to last for an entire year. But Baba then called Misawa and asked him if he could jump from the corner post. And then Misawa replied that he could. And he was called back. So now we're <laughs> going to briefly go through. <laughs> 1984 to 1990. So for the rest of the decade and in the spring 1990, Masawa wrestled as a second generation Tiger Mask, succeeding Satoru Sayama, who we've previously talked about on the show, as Baba purchased the rights to the character's likeness from Tiger Mask mangaka Iki Kajiwara. Misawa debuted as the character at a July 31st show in the Kurame Kokugikan, and in his first match, he defeated La Fiera at the sold-out Denen Coliseum on August 26th. Misawa would no- most notably work with Jerry Estrada and Pirata Morgan over the rest of the year. In 1985, then, Baba would bring in top junior heavyweight talents and high flyers to further establish the new Tiger Mask, including the Dynamite Kid and Kuniaki Kobayashi, the premier rivals of the original. And this was fun for me because uh, just like we got with Tiger Mask and Dynamite Kid, we got that same sort of fire here with Kobayashi and Misawa. Yeah. Um, for um, the first match between Kobayashi and Misawa ended uh, on February 1st in double disqualification. Kobayashi ripped up Misawa's mask and busted him open by running him into the ring post. And a rematch at Sumo Hall on March 9th ended in double countout, which is the match that we're going to get into. On June 21st, in his first match at Nippon Budokan, Misawa unsuccessfully challenged Kobayashi for the NWA International Junior Heavyweight Championship in a match rated the best of the year by the readers of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. Misawa blew out his knee before the match and still delivered a great performance in what wrestling journalist and historian Dave Meltzer called the best match of the Tiger Mask area, but then he would require surgery afterwards. This is where I'm confused. The March 9th match is the five-star match that they did, but then the June 21st match was called the best match of the Tiger Mask era and the match of the year. So, weird. I guess I would have... Yeah, I would have liked to have watched... I should have watched the June 21st match as well. Finally, the aerial style which Misawa has been made to adopt in the Tiger Mask 2 gimmick strained his knees. And years later, he would comment that it was more difficult to elicit crowd reaction when working under the hood. And since the audience expected a superhuman from the Tiger Mask character, crowds were more difficult to impress during the period than they were after his unmasking. Upon his return, the Tiger Mask Kobayashi program culminated on August 31st when Misawa finally won the title from Kobayashi in a rematch with a variation of the Tiger Suplex wherein one of Misawa's hands was used to put Kobayashi in a half Nelson before lifting him. This would then eventually become known as the Tiger Suplex 85. And uh, right after that, he unmasked. And that is where we will pick up next because next time we meet him, he is Masawa. And now, Kuniaki Kobayashi. He debuted in New Japan Pro Wrestling in February 1973, which I could not fucking believe, against Masanobu Kurusi at the age of 17. Kobayashi stayed on the undercard until he was sent abroad in North America in 1980. Upon entering North America in 1980, Kobayashi's first stop was in Mexico, where he made its mark by trying to unmask the other luchadors, especially the Volanos. After his feud with the Misioneros ended, he moved to the United States in L.A., where he wrestled under the name Kid Kobe, winning the NWA America's Heavyweight Championship from Timothy Flowers on July 18th in 1982. He held the title for one month before losing it to Black Gordman. Upon returning to New Japan in October 1982, Kobayashi was involved in a feud with Tiger Mask. Because of his anti-heroic actions, he became regarded as the Tiger Hunter, which is awesome and you can really feel in this match. He also allied with Riki Choshu, Masa Saito, and Killer Khan to form Ishin Gundan as an Ishin Gundan member. He mostly teamed with Isamu Taranishi in tag team action facing New Japan's loyalists in numerous encounters. Japan Pro, um, he eventually left in uh, September 1984 and joined Japan Pro Wrestling, who also had a working agreement with all Japan Pro Wrestling. So while there, Kobayashi feuded, as we said, with Tiger Mask II, and he also held the NWA International Junior Heavyweight Championship after defeating Dynamite Kid on June 13, 1985, and the World Junior Heavyweight Championship after de- defeating Hiro Saito on November 23, 1986. He would also go on a feud with all Japan loyalists such as Norio, Norio Hanaga, Jumbo Saruda, Takahashi, Ishikawa, and Mighty Inyo. After two years, Ishin Gundan left All Japan in March 1987 to return to New Japan. 
After returning to Japan in 1987, Kobayashi won the vacated IWGP Junior Heavyweight Championship by defeating none other than Nobuhiko Takada, who we talked about in a previous episode from his UWF match yeah. um, with Yamazaki. Uh, this was won in a tournament final, final, and he successfully defended it against the likes of Shiro Koshinaka, Owen Hart, Keiichi Yamada, and Nobuhiko Takeda, Takada. He then held the title until December 27th, losing it to the debuting Hiroshi Haas. In na- April 1989, uh, Kobayashi was the first ever opponent of Jushin Thunder Liger. Oh. In a losing effort at the Tokyo Dome. In 1990, he moved up to the heavyweight division and joined the New Japan, New Japan Sekigun against the Blonde Outlaws. Between 92 and 93, Kobayashi had two surgeries to combat colorectal cancer, but still wrestled a shitload of matches, including one-offs with war against the likes of Ashihara Hara, Hiromichi Fuyuki, and Genichiro Tenryu. So not easy matches. These are stiff bastards. In 1999, which seems like a string of unluck here, he had surgery to combat liver cancer. This guy had two different kinds of cancer, leaving him with a large scar on his chest. This and the treatments to combat the cancer forced him to bring an end to his in-ring career. In uh, April 2000, Kobayashi wrestled his final match as an active wrestler, losing to none other than Jushin Thunder Liger. After the bout, he received flowers from Satori Sayama and a message from Mitsuharu Misawa as both Tiger Masks sent their farewell sayings to their biggest rival. After his retirement, he served as a color commentator and trainer at the New Japan Dojo. He made sporadic appearances, however, one being in May of 2003 in a New Japan Alumnus Battle Royale. Another appearance of his occurred on March 6, 2007 when he served as a special guest referee for an eight-man tag team match between El Texano Jr., Minoru, Tiger Mask, Wataru, Inyo, against El Samurai, Jushin Thunder Liger, Koji Kanemoto, and Negro Casas, in which after the match, Kobayashi attacked Liger and delivered his signature fisherman suplex, which we get to see in this match, and it is fucking picture perfect. It's like Alicia Fox doing the Northern Lights. It just looks good, baby. Oh, yeah. um, and then finally, his last appearance was on January 4th, 2017, when he participated in the New Japan Rumble. He was eliminated from the match by none other than Tiger Mask. And now, Kobayashi remains the caretaker of the New Japan Dojo, which I thought was really cool to learn. That is cool. Um, like how they just, like, this was someone I, it just keeps people on. Like, Absolutely. It's like that. And this was someone I had never heard about before. Yeah. Um, so, the match itself, the audience, right as the, the, the copy of the tape that I had, right as it starts, again, women in the ring holding flowers, Japanese style. The audience is chanting Kobayashi loudly as he enters the ring to huge cheers. We then get the funky sounds of the Tiger Mask 2 entrance music as he runs to the ring with his AJPW boys. This is some superhero shit. Seriously, oh, yeah. what a legend Tiger Mask is. Tiger Mask 2 jumps up on the top rope to finish his entrance and is immediately hit with a fucking lariat by Kobayashi who just hits the rope to just suicide dive him and is stopped by the ref. Kobayashi is now shirts off ready to fucking brawl as the ref holds him back. The crowd chants loudly as Tiger Mask re-enters the ring. Kobayashi gets an insane ovation while Tiger Mask also gets a hero's welcome. It's a really weird, strange celebration of both men, usually with these old classic Japanese crowds or just crowds in general. It's rare that they both have such favorites, it feel like. Yeah, that's um, actually kind of strange. Yeah, and uh, especially because Kobayashi is such a heel in this match, but so loved. Um, the ref checks Kobayashi and Tiger Mask, cleans out the streamers, and the match begins. Both men brace their corners and immediately start circling each other. Kobayashi hits a spinning wheel kick right away, and Tiger Mask pits the rope as they begin to circle again. There was not a lot of selling in this match. Like, a lot of, like, I'm going to hit you with a big-ass move, and you're going to pop back up and hit me with a move. And it was it was intense as a result of that. It felt like these guys had a score to settle. Immediately, it felt like Shades of Tiger Mask 1 versus the Dynamite Kid. So the men begin to circle again. The two men grapple. Kobayashi hits a side headlock and is whipped by Tiger Mask, who then hits a shoulder tackle, which is returned with a drop kick. Tiger Mask then hits a brain buster, which I learned any regular vertical suplex in Japanese wrestling is a brain buster because they just do some regular ass vertical suplexes in this and they freak out. Brain buster! Brain um, so it's the best. And then, so he hits him with the brain buster, and Kobayashi quickly regains control though via Matt wrestling. So that was like an example right there where he gets brain busted, and then his first thing is he just puts him in oh. like a Kimura right yeah, after. Yeah, get a hold. Um, yeah. Uh, Kobayashi then whips Tiger Mask and hits him with an elbow, then drops another. Kobayashi gets Tiger Mask up for the tombstone, and I was like, Jesus, this is a little bit early for a tombstone. <laughs> so there's no way. And then he fucking hit it. 
Yeah, and I even make a note. There are a lot of moves early on. Tiger Mask then gets whipped by Kobayashi. Kobayashi hits a sling blade, kick out at one. Kobayashi applies a rear chin lock and starts to crank the arm behind the back, chicken wing style. I really appreciated the way that every single interaction, they were always trying to gain more on the other guy. Uh, Tiger Mask struggles to go to the move and eventually hits the ropes. Once he does, Kobayashi begins a flurry of kicks and throws Mask into the corner. Tiger Mask then begins a flurry of punches and whips Kobayashi and hits him with a big lariat. Um, Tiger Mask then hits a fucking nasty pile driver, gets a side headlock, and then right after he gets so... He just like kills Kobayashi with this headlock or this pile driver, puts him in a side headlock, stands him up, and then Kobayashi just hits a Saito suplex. Tiger Mask and whips Kobayashi, whose shoulder tackles him. Uh, Tiger Mask pops back up. We get an arm drag, spin kick, and that's mess Matt with a massive spin kick by Kobayashi. So anything you can do, I can do better. Big time. Kobayashi hits a snap suplex, but it's called a brain buster. For a two count and then applies a submission. He wraps his legs. So he's sitting behind Tiger Mask. He wraps his legs around the front of his chest. And wrenches his arms upwards. Almost like what it looks to appear like a vertical arm bar. Tiger Mask eventually gains control and works the legs. And when the arms... And then turns Kobayashi's arms into an almost surfboard. Kobayashi begins to work his way out. As Tiger Mask fights for the control. Fights for control as the men twist and turn until Tiger Mask is facing away and hits an inverted drop kick. So they kind of go into like the unprettier setup yeah. here. And then in the unprettier setup, Tiger Mask is facing away and he hits an inverted drop kick, which was awesome. Kobayashi rolls outside and the ref begins to count. Tiger Mask begins to stalk him. Kobayashi slowly gets back in and is met with a kick by Tiger Mask. Then we get a quick series. Side headlock, Irish whip, shoulder tackle, drop down, flip over. Uh, Tiger Mask lands it, leapfrog, flip over. Kobayashi does not land it and gets drop kicked by Tiger Mask. Then a top rope plunger, which Tiger Mask just fucking eats the concrete on as Kobayashi casually nopes right out of the way. We go back to the grapple, but then Kobayashi hit with a gut gut kick and then a takedown into a Boston Crab. They begin to exchange pin roll-up attempts. Tiger Masson hits a double-arm suplex and whips Kobayashi into the ropes and hits a crossbody. Another side headlock is applied and Tiger Mask whips Kobayashi, but goes for a drop kick and Kobayashi holds on to the ropes. But Tiger Mask hits the mat, missing the drop kick. Tiger Mask is then thrown into the corner and whipped but reversed and backs flips off of Kobayashi only to be met with a lariat. Really nice move. Felt like for every innovation, they just had an automatic answer for it. Um, Kobayashi whips Tiger Mask but misses a lariat and then hits a gut kick. Kobayashi now goes to the outside for a suicide dive and misses in the most amazing fashion. If you thought that fucking Tiger Mask flop before this, Kobayashi eats the fucking guardrail on purpose. Like, why would you ever do that to yourself? Tiger Mask then runs back into the ring and hits a suicide dive, which finally lands. Blutus beautifully done in one long take, which I really appreciated. So we get Kobayashi. We're watching hard cam. He runs out and does it. Then we see Tiger Mask run back in. If this was WWE, we would have got 50 goddamn Kevin Dunn cut roonies And uh, there, I really appreciated this old school style of filmmaking here. Also, I mean, Tiger Mask and climbs. Think of the year. Oh, absolutely. Like, they only got three cameras, and I yeah. love it. I miss the years when the G1 was just a hard cam with no commentary. I, fuck, I love that shit. Um, Tiger Mask climbs back into the ring, and Tiger Mask grabs. Um, or Kobayashi climbs back into the ring, and Tiger Mask grabs him on the apron. Um, Tiger Mask suplexes him into the ring. One count. Tiger Mask goes to the Tiger Suplex, but Kobayashi hooks the leg. He spins him, but then gets hit with a backdrop driver. A great counter. Kobayashi stands Tiger Mask up and slams him to the ground. Kobayashi goes up to the top rope, and Tiger Mask hits him, and then a suplex, superplex for a two count. Tiger Mask then slams Kobayashi and hits a second rope elbow drop. Another two count. Tiger Mask now climbs all the way back to the top, but Kobayashi quickly stands up, and he's straight up. Tiger Mask is standing like for a moonsault and Kobayashi just runs up and fucking just throws him backwards as hard and as fast as he can. Um, Tiger Mask, uh, or, and right, we get a two count. Kobayashi then whips Tiger Mask, hits a kick, a fucking picture perfect fisherman suplex, but then Tiger Mask hits the rope and Tiger Mask jumps out again and the men begin various pin attempts as Tiger Mask and Kobayashi suplex each other outside of the ring in a beautiful spot. Like that classic Daniel Bryan where you do, he suplexes him over the rope. He lands on the apron and then flips him onto okay, the yeah, outside. Yeah. Um, 
Kobayashi then throws Tiger Mask into the ring post and hits a backdrop driver on the outside. And then, how it's been in every one of these fucking matches, there's a double count out and the goddamn match ends. And I was so into this one. And it's really like, my, my quick thoughts would be that another inconclusive finish, but this is probably the best match I've watched so far with an inconclusive finish. And there is so much talent here on display. Every move looked great. But God damn it, for me to give a match five stars, like there needs to be a definitive finish or something really, really good that widened this end this way. And this just wasn't it for me. Yeah, stuff like that always just takes like just a little bit away from it. Exactly. And um, I mean, for me, I would give this four and a half stars. So this is one of the higher rated older ones we've watched so far. But again, it's like, and this feels very indicative just of the era is that these feuds would always go on and rather than, you know, like WWE does where the guy loses for four fucking months in a row, they're just going to do double count out after double count out after double count out. And, you know, since they would just run different cities then and there wasn't live television and everything, I guess that made sense for the era. But for me as a modern day viewer looking back through the lens... I just, I'm not a fan of these inconclusive finishes, and I really, really hope that we start to see some actual finishes in these matches. And I think, well, it's just kind of a sign of the times, because, like, especially then, like, when there's not, like, like as big of a presence of, like, television and everything, you got to save, like, the big matches and finishes for the big shows. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally get why they do it. Just wish they didn't. Um, so our next match is actually our first all Japan women's pro wrestling match. I'm fucking so excited. This is my first all Japan pro wrestling women's match in general. I've never seen a Manami Toyota match or anything like that. Yeah. So, I mean, all of these old matches are first time viewings for me. All of the Ric Flair stuff, everything. Um, so our next, our match next week is going to be the Lioness Asuka versus Jaguar Yokota. I'm super fun. Maybe we get Jenna on or something too, because she, she likes that old stuff. Oh, oh yeah, badass. Um, so yeah, that's it for this week. Any any closing comments from you? Yeah, my brethren, suck your own, everybody. There we go. Thank you so much for listening, and that was a good, 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 good match show. Suck your own.